Someone once said that preaching the parables is a novice preacher's dream and an experienced preacher's nightmare. (laughs) Meaning that they seem to be simple stories that even kids can understand. But then there seems to be lots of stuff going on underneath the surface that's difficult to track. Haddon, Haddon Robinson was the professor for many years of preaching. Preaching professor up at Gordon Conwell Seminary just outside of Boston. And Robinson said, preaching the parables is a lot like playing the saxophone. It's very easy to do poorly. And historically, it has been done poorly. Even by great, great men. How is this for an interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan? You remember the Good Samaritan going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's robbed by thieves. The Good Samaritan comes and helps him, takes him to the inn. The wounded man stands for Adam. Jerusalem stands for the heavenly city from which he has fallen. The thieves stand for the devil who has deprived Adam of his immortality. The priest and the Levite stand for the Old Testament law. The Samaritan who binds the man, the man's wounds, stands for Christ who forgives sin. The inn stands for the church. And the innkeeper, get this, the innkeeper stands for the Apostle Paul. Such was the interpretation of no less than St. Augustine. And this type of interpretation, treating the parables like they were an allegory along the lines, say, of Pilgrim's Progress, that type of interpretation persisted, with very few exceptions, up until very recent times. Now, our text today will show this, in fact, that the parables are, at least in part, like Pilgrim's Progress, right? In the sense that things in the parables stand for or represent other things. The difficulty comes in sifting through the details and determining which details have special symbolic significance and which ones are added for color and vividness. This is more of an art than a science, but I do believe that with the proper care, we can find the parables to be just what Jesus intended them to be. But that in and of itself is something of a question. What exactly did Jesus intend with these parables? We think, well, Jesus spoke in parables because he knows people like stories. And because stories are easy for people to grasp, and they make things more real, and they give people something to grab onto, and therefore he spoke in parables. In fact, if you were listening to the gospel reading this morning, you might be shocked as to why he said he spoke in parables. We'll get to it later, but he says something like, I speak in parables so they won't understand. It's amazing how many times I've heard Jesus tells stories, and I have to tell people, yes, so people won't understand. In fact, he tells the stories, and then the the disciples come to him and say, Lord, what's with the story? Could you explain the story to us? So if he's telling the story because the story is supposedly the simplest way to get the message across then something went awry, didn't it? Parables are going to challenge us on these things. 
They're going to challenge us as to why Jesus did it. It turns out that the context of the parables shows them to be prophetic instruments. They're provocative instruments. They're challenging. They're often subversive stories. They usually come in the context of judgment and indictment and radical decision. When Jesus starts telling a parable, our response should not be like the little children at the library, you know, oh, it's story time. It's more like a a son who's been called in by his father and he knows there's something wrong and the father says, son, sit down. And the father paces the room and says, let me tell you a story. Right? The kid knows this isn't good. When Jesus starts telling a parable, there's usually someone who's in his sights, right? He's trying to get at something, usually Israel or his disciples. He tells them in the context of his ministry as he heads toward the cross. Many of them are just veiled prophecies about the the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But if we hear them right, and they're all about hearing, this is all about hearing, the parables have a great fresh power to awaken in us Because they are stories, after all, and ability to hear in a new way. And so, this morning we're going to begin a new series on the parables of Jesus. I'm very excited to preach on these parables. Um, And we start with what has been called the parable about parables. And that's the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The parable about parables. This is a really primitively important parable. And that's seen in a number of ways. There are only two parables, only two, which receive anything like an extended interpretation from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. This is one of them. Matthew clusters all of his parables together in chapter 13. He puts them all there in a row, and this is the first one. More importantly, this parable alone, this is the only parable like this, it contains a section on the purpose of parables in general. You might have seen that in the gospel reading this morning or heard that. There's a little discourse in the middle of this parable about why use parables. In fact, when Mark tells this parable, Jesus says there in Mark's gospel, do you not understand This parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So clearly then, this parable has foundational importance. And I like to look at it under three headings. The parable itself, the parable in verses 3 through 9. The purpose of parables, that's in verses 10 through 17. So we have the parable, we have the purpose of parables, And then we have the interpretation in verses 18 through 23. The parable, the purpose of parables, the interpretation. So first, the parable itself. Verse 3, Matthew tells us that Jesus told them many things in parables. It's fascinating. He did love this form of teaching. And depending on how you count, there are between 30 and 40 parables in the Gospels. There's not just a couple. There's 30 to 40 of them. There are some questions on the edges as to what counts as a parable. And by the way, those are just in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
John doesn't have any parables. So the actual parable is, is really straightforward. A sower, very well-known imagery in ancient Palestine. The sower goes out and sows, and some seed falls on the path. Paths would run alongside the fields, and they'd be hardened by foot traffic, and inevitably some seed would fall there and get devoured by the birds. The second set of seed falls on rocky soil, which was common in Palestine. It has no depth. And so the seed germinates upward quickly, and later it's scorched by the sun and withers. The third set falls among thorns and is eventually choked as it tries to grow up. And finally, there's a fourth category, which yields various productive harvests, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. And verse 9 completes the parable with these crucial words, whoever has ears, let him hear. The parables are, among other things, Jesus' way of trying to get you to hear anew. Matthew uses hearing 15 times in this text to drive the point home. Notice this is a command. It's a command. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And so it, it, when Jesus starts to tell a parable, he's calling for a response which pierces the surface, that allows the word to penetrate. And true hearing is... As we shall see, true hearing is obedience. So that's the parable. It's quite straightforward. A second point is the purpose of the parables, and that's in verses 10 through 17. Now here things get a good deal trickier. The disciples ask him, why do you speak to the people? Meaning the crowds outside, the people in general. Why do you speak to them in parables? Right, and as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't say, well, let me explain. Stories are very accessible. Everybody loves stories. Stories help illuminate things and make them clear. So I use little simple stories. That's the answer we give in our head. Jesus says this, The knowledge of the, of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. I mean, right away, you know that these are dangerous stories. <laughs> Right? Something's going on here more than, I think this story will really help you out. So this note of sovereign grace is struck. To you it has been given. To them it has not been given. And while this idea of sovereign freedom is present, the emphasis here is going to be, I think, on human responsibility. The two things never exclude one another anyway. It's important to see that in this context... The ones to whom it is given does not refer primarily to, to a decree of predestination. If we look at the parables Jesus tells, this refers to those who come to Jesus and ask for help, who say, uh, Lord, what was the parable about? Because the disciples often don't understand the parables. In other words, willingness to truly hear is what determines whether one is in or out in this context. Those who refuse to hear Jesus are out. Those who are willing to hear are in. And so the parable provokes a crisis. It provokes this moment of discrimination. 
which hopefully every sermon does for us. There's no being confronted by the, the incarnate Word of God telling a parable and walking away unchanged. And Jesus continues in verse 12, again, along a rather scandalous theory of parables. He says, whoever, will be, will, uh, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I tell stories so that the people who have will get more, and so that the people who don't have will have even what they have taken away from them. This is, this is not a friendly storyteller. True hearers, Jesus says, will prosper. False non-hearers are going to be judged by the parables. No one's going to be unchanged by them, though. Those who refuse to hear such people, verse 13 says, see, but they don't see. They hear, but they do not hear. And the parables are for, for these people Jesus says they're an indictment. Jesus does not think, you know what, they're not seeing, they're not hearing. I'll tell them a story and then they'll get it. What what often happens here is we treat the parables as free-floating stories, library stories for little children. Right? We don't place them inside the context of Jesus' mission, going to Jerusalem, indicting the unbelieving Jewish nation, which is about to crucify him. And then when you do that, you basically drain all the venom out of the parables. So Jesus seals this point dramatically with a citation from Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 14. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. So what's Jesus doing? He's likening the state of Israel in his time, the hardened rebellion of Israel, to the hardened Israel that Isaiah spoke to. In many ways, the parables are Jesus' last brief, his last piece of evidence before Israel crucifies him. So when he cites Isaiah here, now remember, Isaiah is prophesying to a nation of apostates that is not going to be saved. They're going to be dragged into exile. This is a very provocative thing for Jesus to do, and it's an ironic way of stating the inevitable. Jesus is basically saying, look, the bulk of Israel is not going to repent. They are not going to hear these parables. They are not going to see them. You will indeed hear, the text says, but never understand. You will indeed see and never perceive. Hearing is just a simple physical phenomenon for a lot of people. And seeing never becomes true perception. Notice verse 15. This people's heart has become calloused. There's a long process of hardening before the parable. With their ears, they can barely hear, Jesus says. Israel's hearing is virtually gone. That's what this means in this context. And though Jesus will continue to call them to repentance to the very end, their eyes are closed. This doesn't mean that Jesus does not desire their repentance or their embrace of the parables. He's just not naive about the outcome. 
His desire is seen at the end of verse 15. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So the parables reveal. But to those who've become calloused and hardened like Israel, they end up concealing. And so Jesus is urging in the parables, hearing where judgment is assured. A judgment that is about to devastatingly fall in 70 AD on Jerusalem. And he knows that only a remnant is going to respond and be blessed. And so in verse 16 he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. He says, many righteous men long to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they didn't. Jesus again is saying, to understand the parables, you have to understand that I'm the expectation of Israel. I'm what the righteous have longed for. I bring the kingdom. That's why the parables are told, because they're parables of the kingdom. Again, the parables are not, to say this again, they are not free-floating stories with moral object lessons for children. They are what the righteous have longed to see and hear. Jesus is that, and when he comes, the kingdom comes, and therefore this form of teaching is his way of saying the kingdom has arrived, the mysteries unveiled. Hear him, hear his parables. So this brings us to the third point, the well-known interpretation. Verse 18, back to the theme of hearing. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the word or the message of the kingdom, again, the parables are about the kingdom. What is sown is the gospel, the word of God. And so Jesus now gives us a meditation on the various classes of hearers. He proclaims the word, but there are different kinds of hearers. And though it's never stated here, he is the sower. Jesus is the sower. In a secondary sense, of course, the church in her mission and proclamation sows the gospel as well. Now, this is a really striking way for Jesus to describe his ministry. We're just, I think we're used to it, and so it doesn't strike us as sharply. Especially in the light of the Jewish expectations of a political messiah. Jesus comes and says, here's how my kingdom's going to come. It's going to be like scattering seed on the grass. One commentator said that to many Jews, bringing in the kingdom by sowing the word would seem like trying to train a hockey team by teaching them knitting. I mean, right? the word appears weak and unimpressive and vulnerable. I mean, words, after all, are just syllables. I mean, they're just sound waves evaporating no sooner than they appear. Yet, yet this is the word which is implanted, James says, that's able to save our souls. This is the imperishable word by which we've been born again, which is everywhere increasing and bearing fruit. This is the word of the kingdom. So Jesus goes out in the weak form of a sower. The first class of people correspond to the seed sown on the path. They're hardened up front. They don't even understand the word. 
The evil one snatches it away, just as the birds devoured the seed. They come to church, they hear the word, they walk away holy, or at least apparently unaffected. So the parable functions as a prophetic warning, and if you can sense yourself, at least partially in this class, of people, then we are to cry out to God to break up our hearts while there is still time. Believe me, the church is full of people, not necessarily this church, but the church at large, who come, who hear, who walk away, and for whom nothing ever changes. That, beloved, is a terrifying place to be. Verse 20, we're told, the second class, the seed sown on the rocky ground, are those who hear the word immediately. This is sort of the other extreme. They hear the word at once and they receive it with joy. They're very excited. But the excitement is, is connected to their shallowness, right? The, 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 when Jesus told the parable, he said that the ground here is shallow. There's, there's no root here. So you get this quick response. It's really excited, but they have no root. Rootless joy is not lasting joy. There are two kinds of responses to the word that are the most dangerous. One is the, the person for whom the word has no impact whatsoever. The other is the person who, upon hearing it, seems to jump through the moon over it immediately. Both of those responses should make us suspicious. Right? This uh, condition of enduring for a little while. John Calvin called this, they have temporary faith. I mean, it looks like faith. I mean, it looks like joy. It lasts for a little while. But when trouble or persecution comes on account of the word, when the gospel begins to cost, they quickly fall away. The falling away happens very sharply. They're shallow, superficial hearers. You know, the church and, and the follow-up statistics from any large-scale evangelistic ministry tell you this. The church is full of people like this who are shallow hearers. They respond they're, they're really excited, they're full of joy, and then, bam, they disappear. They never become disciples who are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They're one of the biggest megachurches in America, a church out in uh, suburban Chicago, did a very famous study where they, tra- they had tens of thousands of members. It's an enormous church. And they tracked these people over time. And their, and their own study, they said, indicted their practice. They basically said, look, we have never created disciples here. We have failed to create disciples. We've got 10, 20, 30,000 members, but we don't have disciples. So this is a category that should give us all some pause because we're not even facing very much trouble and hostility, though it may be increasing because of the word. So what do we do? I mean, the remedy here is we have to labor while there's time to put down roots, to be like trees planted by streams of water, which meditate on the word of God day and night. You can't really make up ground here. You just have to start doing the work. As we've said before, St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar from the 4th century, said, your relationship to Christ is identical to your relationship to Holy Scripture. 
So let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The third class is in verse 22. And this is probably the most relevant one, I think, to our situation. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. Right? So some amount of legitimate real hearing takes place here. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Right? There are two deadly enemies here. First, the, the cares or the worries of the world. Your career, you know, your bank account, your desire for success. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? I mean, how unrealistic is the gospel of the kingdom with all of these voices clamoring for our attention? I mean, after all, we have to attend to these things, don't we? And we must be realists. We have to be good stewards. And so there's a thousand excuses and a thousand distractions and they're legitimate cares, but they can obtain a deadening grip on our spiritual life. This is not my opinion. This is what Jesus says. The worries and cares of life and the deceitfulness of wealth will, will conspire to choke out the gospel of the kingdom. He doesn't say, look, the pursuit of the American dream and the embrace of me and my gospel are completely compatible. There's really no tension between them at all, and I wouldn't worry about it. That's a leftist socialist canard. <laughs> Don't worry about that. He doesn't say that. You'll notice in the text, Jesus does not view wealth as neutral. He says the deceitfulness of wealth. You know, he doesn't say that about, say, screwdrivers or produce. He doesn't say, be careful if you accumulate a lot of screwdrivers, they might seduce you away from my kingdom. Because screwdrivers really are neutral. Or, you know, be careful that you don't accumulate too many apples. But wealth, he recognizes, has a seductive power that other things don't have. It is a falsification of the situation, beloved, to say wealth is neutral and can be used for good or evil. Jesus never says anything even remotely like that. He says you can't serve God and mammon. He treats mammon as if it's a competing power. What you are doing when you take wealth and you use it for the righteousness of the kingdom of God, is you're laying hold of an alien power, and you're profaning it, and you're stripping of it of its sacredness, right? And you're saying, I'm going to lay hold of this thing, and I'm going to put it into the kingdom of God and use it for good. But you're not laying hold of something like a screwdriver or an apple and saying, well, I'm going to use this for the kingdom. So Jesus thinks that we have to be careful here. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is the category of the parable that touches home to the American Christian. So what's the greatest threat to the Western church? Is it Islam? Is it abortion? It must be the gay agenda. Maybe it's creeping secularism. Maybe it's political leftism. You know, I think a good case could be made that Jesus would say, it's our wealth and our materialism. It's our deep, radical commitment to a consumer society. 
which has spawned a thousand amusements for us to fritter our lives away with. Notice that in this class of people, there are those who remain inside the church for a long time. These things are said slowly to choke the word. I mean, they don't make the word just go away overnight. They just squeeze it a little bit. It's a slow, gradual process. And it ends up not necessarily with the person you know, becoming some sort of notorious sinner or apostate. It just ends up with the person being useless and unfruitful in the kingdom, Jesus says. They're very good with the remote control. They're just useless in the kingdom of God. And so we need to be ruthless and self-critical here because the word of the kingdom, which is the word of the king, is just not going to share the stage with our cares and all of our riches. Finally, the fourth category, verse 23, is seed which is sown on good soil. You know, it's interesting, there are four categories here. And, you know, Jesus is rough, you know, roughly generalizing, but only one of them is good. <laughs> it's easy to sow, to have the seed sown onto some sort of soil in your life that's not good. It's much more difficult to be in this fourth category. This one hears the word, understands it. Luke says he has a good and a noble heart. These are true believers. They endure to the end. They build their house on the rock. And they're fruitful. They're not all equally fruitful. Some are 100, some are 60, some are 30-fold. But here, where the word, the thing which seems weak and foolish, ends up reaping this bountiful harvest. And that harvest has transformed the West and is working mightily in the world. So it's a challenging parable. It's calling us to be hearers of the word of the kingdom. One of the ways you know you're hearing the Bible right, I think, is if it scandalizes you. If you find yourself saying, that cannot be. Because much of what Jesus says falls into that category. If you find your perceptions challenged and you find yourself wanting to reorient your life around the gospel. So Jesus is pleading for responsible, productive hearing. There's a story of three older men, all hard of hearing. And they went out for a walk together. The first one says, it's windy. And the second says, no, it's Thursday. If you didn't get that part, you're not going to get the punchline. All right, so, so, so let me start over again. All right, three older men, they're all hard of hearing. They go out for a walk. The first one says, it's windy. The second says, no, it's Thursday. And the third one says, me too, let's go get something to drink. <laughs> so be careful what and how you hear. Hearing affects and determines destiny. Amen.